M-A-C, as in MacDonald, means son of, while N-I-C, Nick Donald, means daughter of. Welcome to Two Thirds Focused. I'm Rasmus. I'm Jan. And I'm Joe. Woohoo! Hello, Joe. <laughs> that was Hello. interesting. How are you? <laughs> you? You are our substitute red today. I'll take it. Yeah. I mean, you, I mean you, you're basically living in France already, so you're halfway there. Just missing the accent <laughs> and being old. <laughs> I mean, we're close, but thankfully not, not close enough to smell the cheese. <laughs> <laughs> well, you have cheddar in England. That smells. That's the only edible cheese. Oh, oh, that's how it is. Okay. Yeah. You've been to Norway. You've tried our cheese. It's not that bad. Yeah. Brown cheese. Are you kidding me? <laughs> there's other kinds but fine i'll yeah i'll leave it at that how are you doing man what's what's what you guys been up to at least recently we've been doing a lot it's been very very busy as well as our normal orders so working with all day goods still come london-based yeah. company who make recycled plastic knife handles we make blades for them so we had our regular order with them then there's a chap called mike with a youtube channel ta outdoors and yeah. we make him axes we make the ta axe Oh, he wants more. Oh, wow. Say again. He wants more of them. Oh, yeah. Yeah. The first 25 sold in just over two hours. Wow. So we are going to be making more batches. The second batch he's picking up on Monday. And then we already have another two batches to work on. So plenty of work from that. And then we, the big news really was we went to the British shooting show, which is the biggest uk based show around hunting and shooting right and outdoor pursuits really so there's very strict firearms laws in the uk so hunting isn't something that is done by a lot of people yeah but it's still a very popular pastime you know clay pigeon shooting is quite popular and also you know things like deer stalking it has to be done in the UK because deer have to be managed. There's no natural predators. So deer management is really important. Yeah, you yeah. killed off the last wolf in the 1320s or something. Genius, right? We went to the British shooting show and the main thing we were launching was a project that I first thought of when I started Thornwell Forge a year ago to the day, actually. Oh, um, oh yeah, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> which is making knives out of old shotguns. When wow. a shotgun, you can have a shotgun that costs a vast amount of money initially. Mm. You can, you, you know, you can easily pay over a hundred thousand pounds for a shotgun. If you want to, you can pay 50 pounds for a shotgun as well. So there's, you know, there's a spectrum, but you have a shotgun that's reached the end of its useful life. It's 150, 200 years old. The barrels are too thin to shoot. The barrels are dented. The crack, the stock's cracked, you know, whatever it is, the gun can't be used anymore especially now steel shot is coming in to the UK. So we're not going to be allowed to use lead shot in our cartridges anymore. Right. Okay. Which is a whole nother debate. Steel is a lot harder than lead. So that will mean that you can't use a lot of old guns because the barrels won't be able to stand up to steel yeah, shot. Too fragile. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So all those guns that potentially have a vast amount of sentimental value, even if they don't have monetary value, we can take those and make them into knives. So it's something you don't have to keep locked away in a cabinet. You don't have to spend thousands of pounds getting it into a working condition, if that's even possible. You can take it out, use it, whether you go hunting or doing bushcraft or whatever it is, and you can continue using that tool just in a different form. 
that's actually lovely. Yep. And it's a difficult subject to talk about because a lot of people are against hunting. Yeah. And a lot of people get very intimidated by the thought of knives. And I totally understand. I don't. Each point of view, even if I don't agree with it. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> but I think it's a really nice way of giving new life to something that would otherwise be chopped into two-inch sections and thrown in a bin. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Especially if there's a lot of memory attached to it. 100%. I mean, I, I come from a family of hunters, and I remember that some of the guns my grandfather used for hunting. And it's kind of like you just picture the person with it. So I, I would be kind of sad if that just get thrown away, even though I'm not a hunter, like I don't shoot weapons. So I think giving it a second life as a knife is quite nice, actually. Yeah, and I don't know what the laws are like where you are, but in the UK, you either have to get the gun deactivated so you can put it on the wall. Yeah, same here. Which, which means that you well have to, yeah, and you have to pay a lot of money. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. Or you can just keep it locked away in your cabinet, mm -hmm. taking up space and not being on view. Mm -hmm. So all you'll really do is take it out every once in a while, look at it and put it away again. Yeah, well, I don't think that would even be allowed here. I'm not sure what the, the, the law situation is there, but yeah. In the UK, you can do that with a shotgun, but you couldn't do it with a firearm. So if it was a rifle, mm -hmm. it has to be in use. Otherwise, you mm. can't keep it. Okay. Right. Okay. Interesting. I mean, uh, yeah, I guess it makes a lot of sense that you shouldn't have like random weapons just laying about. What what I wonder about, like, I'm not sure if you guys already discussed it, but what how is the quality of the steel usually? Because I imagine it would be a pretty high quality steel, like just from the the. the I guess it's so so. I'm I'm not sure. It's variable. Okay. Is how I describe it. So, depending on the quality of the gun that we're working with, the the barrels can be made of Damascus. They can be Damascus barrels oh, that wow. have been made traditionally, where you have three bars of pattern welded steel, twisted, forge welded together, wrapped around a mandrel, fire welded together and drawn out into a barrel. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So if we make a knife using old Damascus barrels, obviously you then have a Damascus Sanmai billet. We use a piece of 5200 high carbon steel as a core for a three layer billet. So we know the quality of the steel mm. that's going to make the cutting edge. But even so, that's a really high quality gun barrel. But for 150 years potentially you know i posted one on my instagram the other day that knife that gun was 130 years old handmade that has had 130 years of having oil grease mud rain lead mm. going at very very high speeds down those metal tubes mm -hmm. yeah and those metal tubes when you shoot a cartridge they ever so slightly swell out as the shot passes down the barrel so the barrel yeah. swells as the shot passes through that's a lot of stress on a piece of steel yeah yeah is it does, does it rip is the delamination like what does it look like it can delaminate so the process begins by having a destroyed shotgun mm -hmm. or i'm going through the application for process for becoming a firearms dealer so i can destroy the shotguns legally myself so we start with a section of barrel, which I think. I'm oh, sorry, but getting you get the full license to get a firearms dealer, so that you I'm can dismantle and destroy. It. Yeah, well, so that you can actually destroy the destroy yes. the barrels or the, the guns in house. Yeah, that sounds like a bureaucratic nightmare. 
It is a bureaucratic nightmare, and you should see the thickness of the forms I have to fill out. <laughs> and of course, you can't do it online. <laughs> you have not. to do it on paper in block capitals and then post it. Oh, Jesus fucking Christ. Okay, yeah. <laughs> fun. Lots of fun. <laughs> fun. So we take a section of barrel, and then we cut it lengthways, and then open it. So we take something round and open it and flatten it out. And for a piece of steel that hasn't moved in 130 years, that's a lot of stress, even though we do it at 800,000 degrees. Sometimes it does delaminate, sometimes it cracks, and then we have to be very selective about the pieces of steel that we use for the knife. We open it up, flatten it out, and then we have several pieces. We then trim off the excess, or if there are any cracked or delaminated sections, cut a piece of high carbon steel to to match size-wise. We use 52100, which is one of the few steels still made in Sheffield, which is a very difficult sentence to say quickly. <laughs> I, I bet you had a lot of practice at a gun show. I, yeah, but I was very, very tired. And trying to say that quickly over and over again to every customer who came past was a good challenge. <laughs> <laughs> I bet. But we use 52100 as the core, and then we laminate those three layers together, fire weld it, and then forge our blade from that. Nice. So it's quite an involved process. I, it's quite expensive. It's cheaper than getting a gun deactivated, and it's cheaper than getting a gun back into a shooting condition, but it's still quite expensive. For mm-hmm. If someone wanted to bring their gun to me to make into a knife, the price to start at £800, and depending on how many options they want to add in, like keeping the trigger tang in the handle, getting the handle checkered, engraving the bolster, things like, all things we can do, mm. the price kind of goes up from there. But I always say that if you're going to make a knife, starting with a gun is a terrible place to start. If you just want a gun. No, just want a knife. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It makes but life I mean, very difficult for you. <laughs> but I mean, people don't do this because they need a knife now. They do it because of the sentimentality of it. Either or either because of the story of the piece itself. Like this is like reusing old hunting equipment into a tool that can still be used. Or it is our old hunting equipment now being our knives. Yeah. We were speaking to people at the shooting show and people were saying like, I have granddad's old gun. Granddad's passed away, but I just remember when I was a kid going out with him shooting and he had that gun and I never saw him without it. And that's the kind of sentimental value that we want to maintain or people's first guns when they were children. (laughs) Here's my murder weapon. It's a little bit hard to keep that on hold. Could you just... Make a knife out of it so nobody knows. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I can't right, murder is... with this anymore. Can you make it into another weapon that I can murder with? Exactly. <laughs> so I'm not big into shooting anymore. No, but but seriously speaking, I mean, there's there, there's there must be a heck of a lot of procedure before you're actually allowed to take that gun apart. Correct. Yeah, absolutely. And up till now, we've been working with a local gun shop mm-hmm. who are based literally yeah, just over the road. So. Mm-hmm. They have guns in their scrap bin that are going to be destroyed. They give me parts of the barrels and the stocks and then the action and any parts I'm not using go and get destroyed. And the action with the firing pins and the mechanism is the part that's really illegal. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. the dangerous. The rest of it is just accessories. I mean, yeah, and, and the bits that makes it go straight. Yeah. <laughs> the shotguns <laughs> only go straight-ish, so it's fine. Well, yes, yeah, that's that's true. I mean, yeah, no, it's it is a really, really cool idea, and I can't imagine it not going well. Kind of. Well, there's some really exciting leads. There's 
potential for working with the biggest names in gun making with this you know the there are a couple of guys who saw it what we were doing at the british shooting show mm. who really really liked it and worked with the big names mm. and they're gonna we're gonna make them a knife they're gonna take the knife round see if see if they want to get involved which is really cool but really it was exciting. it was a busy two weeks leading up to the shooting show i tell you <laughs> yeah how uh, many we, knives did you make in total? we took with us 31 knives and 12 axes Oh. Wow. So we had nine friction folders and we had, I think, nine shotgun fixed blades. So nine fixed blade knives made out of shotguns. Eight friction folders, like Higanokami style friction folders, where the handles were made of the shotgun barrels. Yes. Okay. And then I had one. Well, non us for us, what's a friction? So a friction folder is a knife that doesn't have a locking mechanism. So, so it has ah, it is, okay. is a traditional one. So really that is a slip joint. Mm -hmm. okay. Probably, yes, yes, it is. But mm, yeah. is it? No, it has to be. Yeah, because it's got a, and it's got now it makes sense. Okay, yeah. Yeah, that's got spring without the locking mechanism thing. If I do, yeah, no spring, no locking mechanism. It's just the friction, but created by the rivet that kind of keeps the blade stiff enough that it doesn't just open and close willy-nilly. I have okay. one of those. Hold on. <laughs> I've got a bunch upstairs. <laughs> I just remembered years back, I made one as a oh, cool. bottle opener and, and a folding knife. That's it. That's the time. Yeah. Okay. So nice. Patreon exclusive. Patreon.com, <laughs> two-thirds focused. Or you wait two weeks and you'll see the video on YouTube. Don't be boring. You want money. <laughs> we took a lot of knives and I had I had how many did I have? Six, nine. I had ten kitchen knife blades already forged wait and ground waiting for mm. handles. So I handled those, then made the shotgun knives and the folding knives and six axes from scratch in two weeks. So it was busy. Yeah. That's and sheets. Oh fucking hell. Yeah. I, I mean, honestly, that's the thing I always forget. It's like, I have forged a thing. I was like, yeah, and now I need a handle and a sheath. <laughs> yeah. Fuck. <laughs> <laughs> but it was so rewarding. Everybody was so interested in what we were doing at the shooting show. It was fantastic. I bet. I, yeah, no, I, I just think like seeing how your personal interest and your skilling blacksmithing is sort of culminating in this one thing. Yeah, and the potentials limitless really we can get well we're going to get the handles checkered which is where it has that diamond cross hatching mm. that you see on guns a lot for grip when your hands are wet so we're going to get checkering done on the handles the bolsters or the guards are going to get engraved both of those are being done by people who work with like the biggest names in gun making it's quite oh. daunting <laughs> yeah nice and then there was, there's also a process called browning which is essentially controlled rusting that's done yeah. very commonly. Well, it's not done commonly because it's very difficult to do, but traditionally it was done to gun barrels. It's a controlled rust that produces like a sunset orange color on the barrels and then protects them from further corrosion. Oh. Oh, so it's like starting and stopped? Yes, exactly. Okay. Huh. And so we're going to try that on a knife blade as well. And the colors will keep? Or have we not tested yeah. it out that long term yet? The colors do stay because there are gun barrels that are hundreds of years old with brown 
brown that are still brown yeah wow that's kind of amazing it is amazing it's you know, right, writing that down <laughs> yeah I'm just like, i've heard of bluing it things but browning has been like always thought that's just a name for a similar process that was just using slightly different chemicals but it is a completely other aesthetic thing yes yeah wow okay it's beautiful it is beautiful it's done properly I, oh yeah i personally like the idea of that you're taking something like you're making something new but using all the techniques from something else with it yeah precisely and we it's not the first time we've done this you know you very recently in fact made a cheese knife for Pippa Middleton and James Matthews, and relatively sure. famous people in the UK. In the UK. And, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and the blade was made from a laminate of wrought iron and 5200, and the handle was a piece of yew, mm. the tree, Taxus Picata, not yew. <laughs> and thank you. Yes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Just for clarification. <laughs> the wrought iron and the yew were from their estate. Oh. which is a really wonderful story. So now they have a cheese knife that is made out of parts of their estate, which I think is fantastic. But it doesn't have, it doesn't cut as deep as the sentimental value of an old gun, I think. I mean, realizing we are going already deep into the topic and not talking about Jan and I's mine day or week or whatever, but we can do that at the, at the end. Who cares? It was just be... work. <laughs> yeah, yeah uh, I had more fun, but we can get to that later. The story element of this, like, how does that impact you? Is that the motivating factor for this project, that it's all story? Yes, because you really don't want to cock it up. Well, when you put it like that, it sounds <laughs> anxiety-inducing. There is a very limited amount of steel that you can use because the barrels get very thin very quickly. There's a very limited amount of steel that you can use to do this. You've got perhaps two tries max to get this welded oh. and for it to stay laminated through all the heat treating process. Yeah. Which if it were just mild steel and a piece of high carbon steel would be fine, but we're working with steel that has been put under vast amounts of stress for hundreds of years. So success is not guaranteed. And when I was making the batch of knives for the shooting show, I lost three knives because I didn't temper them immediately after hardening. It was well, probably how, how immediately are we talking? Two hours. Yeah, yeah. So I left the knives for two hours after hardening before I tempered them. And they didn't just delaminate, they peeled like a banana. I've had that happen as well. well. And it wasn't the outer layers coming off the core, the core split in half. And that happened to a total of four knives, actually. Hmm. It's not all fun and games, you know, it's not all success. There's a lot of yeah. trial and error when it comes to new things, but so the, there is quite a lot of pressure to get it right. Um, it's a process we've kind of refined now. and We've got it nailed down. So I think we'll get it right every time now. Mm. But you're taking a piece of somebody else's history. And there's a lot of pressure associated with that. So, yeah. You have to do the correct thing. Claim yes. Steve. <laughs> <laughs> God damn it, Steve. I mean, what else can you do? He's always there. He's not doing anything proper. <laughs> he does make a good cup of tea. Yeah, there's that. But you can only drink so many cups in a day. <laughs> True. <laughs> but okay, okay, okay. So, well, I guess technical question. How thin usually is the steel in the barrels when you get them? By the time I flattened it out, 
three mil max. Yeah. That's then okay. I I want to maximize chances of success. So I start with a breech end, which is the end closest to your hands when you're holding the gun. Because that's where it's thickest. At the end of the barrels, where the shot comes out, it's thinnest. Because you you try and reduce weight at the end of the gun. Right. Yeah. Makes and sense. also the explosion is happening in the combustion chamber, right at the breech end. So yeah. that's where the walls need to be thickest. So I take that steel. By the time it's flattened out, I then cut off any excess and grind one face clean of scale, because I want to create the best possible scenario for a fire world. Yeah. Scale is not conducive to a good firewall. <laughs> so no, I clean it off completely on the grinder, get rid of it all, and then left with three mil max. Hmm. Sometimes thinner. Does that mean you might have to like fold the barrel in on itself to build up stock to forge belt, or do you go with it either way? The problem with that is as you go further down the barrel to increase your material to fold over to increase the thickness, yeah. the barrels get thinner. If you were then, I've tried it before, if you were then to grind the scale off that, you're left with something that's less than a millimeter thick. Yeah. And then you're fire welding foil. <laughs> Basically. And there's no mass to hold the heat, so you don't have time to actually stick it. No. Oh, damn. Yeah. So you do really have a maximum of two tries. That, that means like you're only using, what, like the first... Eight inches. 20 centimeters. I just wanted to say it's like the, the first eighth of the barrel. Yeah. So, wow. so we measure barrels even... on inches in the UK. So if you have a 30 or 32 inch barrel, I can use for a fixed blade, I can use the thinner parts to make handles for Higginokami knives, but mm. to make a fixed blade, I can use the first eight inches. Damn. I mean, yeah, then it's still really small. I'm just thinking of like a hefty shotgun and thinking like there's a lot of steel in this. But of course, like not only are you getting quote unquote the worst of the worst because they're worn out, they're already worn thin, so that's lighter. But then also, it is heavy in length, not in thickness, as it were. Like I say, if you want to make a knife, don't start with a gun. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I could probably have told you that before you started, but uh, <laughs> as we agreed upon, this is a cool story. Yeah, and that's what it's all about. It's all about the story because mm -hmm. it's it's not it's not the cheapest way to make a knife. It's not the most efficient way to make a knife, but it will potentially have the most sentimental value. And that's what's important. So what gave you this idea, though? Honestly, I have no clue. <laughs> <laughs> I honestly have no idea. I think it's like asking an author how they came up with an idea for a character. You're like, it just happened. <laughs> when I first set up Thornwood Forge a year ago, one of the first things I did, I think it was like on the day I started, I went over to my local gun shop, which is literally over the road. It's like a mile away. And I said, look, I would love to try and make a knife out of an old gun. Theoretically, it's possible. There's steel that I can laminate. Yeah. And there's wood in the stock from which I can make a handle. Theoretically possible. Can you give me a gun to try it with? And I had a shotgun license. So they had a gun that was still perfectly fine. It was a 16 bore bakel. So Russian made. Zero value. 16 bore, the ammunition is relatively expensive when it comes to shotgun cartridges. And bakels were produced on a vast scale with very, very little embellishment. And so as a result, have almost zero value. And with the war, they have become very, very unfashionable, understandably. Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. They just had the 16 ball bakel in their scrap bin. There was nothing wrong with it, but it was worth nothing. So they were going to scrap it. So they just said, yeah, there you go. Put it on my license. And it then took me eight months <laughs> to actually get around to making a knife. <laughs> Sounds about average. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Everything between like half a year and two years is completely fine in like the maker space for <laughs> oh i have an idea i have to try that as soon as possible <laughs> yeah. yeah they also they also gave me a damascus barrel at the same time oh which was really cool because mm-hmm. i was like oh my god i freaked out it's like oh it's gonna be beautiful <laughs> so it took me a long time it took me eight months before i finally got around to doing it and the bakel is monosteel barrels that laminated fine but the damascus didn't so the Damascus knife is still in the workshop and can't be used because uh, about 10 millimeters of the blade close to the heel has delaminated. So, yeah. But I managed to use the other barrel to make another shotgun knife that we took to the shooting show, which was really cool. So that gun wasn't totally wasted. So I just kind of asked them and, and they, they were great, actually. The shop is called Coon Farm Sporting. If you're in the area, go and check them out. It's run by Julian and Rob and they are wonderful people. They're, they're just so behind what we're doing. They said, that sounds like a great idea. We love knives. Go and give it a go. Cool. So they gave me that bakel. I gave it a go. And the first knife I made out of old shotguns, I finished in December 2023. So I started in March, finished the first one in December, and it turned out really, really nicely. It turned out really nicely. And I've, I have no idea where the initial idea came from, but... I'm just glad it did because it's the only original idea I've ever had. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty lucky that it's a good one. I know. <laughs> At this point, you don't really need Jimmy and Steve anymore. <laughs> I do. In the two weeks leading up to the shooting show when I was doing fancy things, they kept the business running 100%. They did all the work in the background that kept the business going, the all-day goods job. Yeah. If If I hadn't had them, then I wouldn't have been able to make the stock for the shooting show at all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I know, I know. But we, we just have that rule get... to always give them shit when we can. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's mandatory. They could have got the same amount of work done in half the time if they really tried. But <laughs> exactly. <laughs> now we're talking. Yeah. <laughs> but I have to give them credit first before I tell you this. <laughs> Uh, I mean, I'm editing the podcast. You have no idea how this will sound. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> There's going to be some wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey stuff happening. Uh, fantastic. Are you thinking bigger, though? Are you thinking, like, maybe even trying to do, like, hatchets or something with the, with the gun stock as well? Doing what? Like, making hatchets or camping axes. So, I mean, not ge- I'm not guessing you go as far as, like, sledgehammers and splitting malls. No, I don't think so. I've thought about this a lot. Because A, there's not enough steel to make an axe, even as a laminate. Yeah. Really. So the only option there you're left with is the handle. Walnut isn't, and 99% of stocks are made of walnut. It's not very good for handles, axe handles. It's got to withstand a lot of impact in a very different way to the way a gun stock does. And also, if it's pretty wood, which makes it worth making a handle from, it's usually got quite swirly grain. Yeah, mm-hmm. and that doesn't work well with the stress of an axe swing. Exactly. So when you've got it in a cricket bat-sized gunstock, it's fine. Yeah. But when you then make a, a relatively spindly axe handle, 
yeah, it's not ideal. It's also not very long. And depending on how the gun's made, you don't actually have that much wood to work with. So some stocks are fixed to the action by a big bolt that goes from the back of the stock all the way through a big hole in the stock and fixes right, it to the action. Yeah. If that's the case, you don't have a lot of wood to work with. You'll maybe get one knife handle after that, let alone an axe handle. If you're lucky and it's held on by screws through the trigger tang and then the top of the action, yeah. then you can get up to two blocks maximum. Mm -hmm. but if you yeah. have a person with big hands so you need a big block then one i'm yeah i'm sure you do the product shots when you made a knife but do you do a before shot like of the actual gun before you start forging it or cutting it apart yes yeah so okay. absolutely so we've got photos from start to finish which are mm -hmm. up on our barrels to blades page on the website oh okay and then steve's going to make a film of the whole process start to finish and then there's a YouTube channel called TGS Outdoors with a guy, run by a guy called Johnny Carter. Mm -hmm. And he came down to the workshop, dropped us off one of his guns. And that knife you saw with the trigger tang still in the back of the handle and the original checkering, mm. that's the knife we made from his gun. And that YouTube video will be up soon. Cool. I'm looking forward to that. Me too. Absolutely. But that's, you know, that's pretty much what I've been thinking about for the last month, month and a half. <laughs> or yeah. actually a year <laughs> yeah, <maybe. laughs> but, yeah. but we have been busy besides that yeah yeah i wanted to say because you said earlier like you've also been making access and i saw a little bit of that on the i think you guys talked about it on the youtube channel yes and then you got the nice what's going on it's like what, what else is like you you just go in every single direction whatever comes to mind or do you have a, like a straight plan for what's about to happen next my specialism is really tool making. Mm -hmm. So, and that's kind of refined even further into knives and axes. That's not going to be the entirety of the business. So one of the things we're also working on at the moment is something that's really artistic, which really appeals to Jimmy. And if people haven't gone to see him, I think last time I was on the podcast, I recommended him. Yeah, you did. People go and see mm -hmm. him because he is an outstanding artist. And Annoyingly designer. so. Annoyingly so. He's never been taught. He can just do it. Yeah, that's the worst. It's <laughs> the worst. He's just amazing at it. And so on the estate where the workshop is, there is a holiday lap called Croft View, which can sleep up to 30 people. It's where myself and my wife got married. Lovely place. In the garden, they have a hobbit hole, which is oh. amazing. It's oh. underground. It's got a fire pit. It's got big glass doors looking out over a view as it sticks out the side of a hill. It's just wonderful. It's got two tree trunks going up inside of it. It's fantastic. Anyway, Damn, the stairs okay. that go down into it, we're making a handrail to go down there. And it's got one of those round hobbit doors with yeah, that mm -hmm. sort of hinges. We made a fire pit to go in there uh, about 11 months ago. And so we're making a handrail in the same style. Jimmy's taking lead on this because he he's just he makes the most beautiful things. Hmm. So I let him do it because when I do stuff like that, I follow formulas <laughs> and it never looks as beautiful as when Jimmy does it. So we do some artistic work as well. And I think that's really important because with things like the all day goods and TA axes, it can, it's production work and it can be very repetitive and very monotonous. So it's really important to throw in something creative every now and then to keep the interest in the craftsmanship. Yeah. Try new techniques try different ways of joining, try different embellishments, try. It's just an artistic project like that is an excuse to experiment. Mm -hmm. 
And that's really important. Yeah, that, that's something I also am trying to schedule more time for, is to not just do all the things that I quote-unquote need to earn money, but also do the things that develops my skill, gives me some of that creative release, as it were. Yeah. Like being able to take that, that that vague idea I maybe had like five years ago or something and actually turn it into something, or at least try to see if it's doable. Yeah. And then Absolutely. eventually it might turn into either a project where I have a customer who sees the thing on Instagram, which has happened, and go like, oh, could you do that, but this way instead? Mm-hmm. And then that, suddenly that's a client job. Mm. Or, it, or just taking playing around with techniques and realizing, no, this is really unique, and I want to use this in a product that will be a regular seller on my website, and mm-hmm. hopefully a re- regular seller. So you, you need a time to play. Yeah, and as I'm sure you've experienced, it's quite it can be quite hard to let go of that time and go actually yeah i'm not going to do something that's immediately productive especially if you have something that already works exactly yeah i think this is what most people get caught up they start something it works out and then they want to do something else but they don't allow themselves because they have something that's already gone for them Yeah. yeah yeah and but you have to look at it like an investment It's not Mm -hmm. something that's going to pay off now or in a month or in two months or three months. It's something that's going to pay off in maybe a year because you'll find out new stuff. You don't find new stuff just doing what you've always done. No, you need to change things up. You need to do things differently or it will just always be the same, same old, same old. There's people that are happy with it and I envy them a little bit. There's, there's, There's people that can do the same job like every single day and are absolutely content with it and get getting better at it I, i'm the direct opposite of it so i i have a day job if i do something if i do want to do like production work like i love doing those camera straps hmm. but i already catch myself that i'm not doing as many as i should do because i'm already getting bored and i'm thinking about new ideas of getting them because as soon as i do something i'm already like off to the next thing next and off to the next thing. So I have to force it's the direct office that I have to force myself to actually stay with it and do it and allow myself to get better at it also. Yeah. Because if you always start something new, it's great having a new idea, but you're not getting better at it. You know what you need, Jan? Hmm? Employees. No, 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 no. no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you're absolutely right though, because repetition although perfection is something we'll never achieve repetition breeds perfection because Mm. you're never going to get something perfect doing it once it's going to take doing it over and over and over for you to be able to get it as good as you can kind of different question are you similar to me in that way being afraid of getting too complacent and sort of stuck in the same old same old hundred percent hundred percent and it's it's some it's a theme that's constant throughout my life i'm just terrified of being complacent i never stop to look back at what we've achieved because i don't never want to be satisfied with what i've done yeah and i have to say the british shooting show was a wonderful time for looking back and going wow we've achieved a lot in one year we've achieved yeah. mm-hmm. a hell of a lot and it's, it's only been a year yeah and so it was really, it was a really nice moment of reflection, actually. But it's not something that comes naturally to me. I I don't look at what I've achieved. I always look at what I can improve on. Yeah, and I, I'm very much the same. Of it's I don't want to see a see 
I mean, it is nice to look back and see like, oh, I did the thing. This was good. Mm -hmm. But then I always kind of end up going, well, but this, I can do this better. I can do this better. There's room, always room for improvement. And I'm kind of afraid of not seeing what can be improved upon because then suddenly I could have lost a touch or something. Yeah. I think it's the craftsman's curse that yeah. you never see the good in your own work. You only ever see the imperfections. Yeah. And, and that's kind of a force of habit as well. Like we want to get better. So we only look for the things that can be done better, but then it's kind of needs to be at least on, on, on me almost forced upon me to say like, no, no, think about the good thing about this thing. I recognize mm -hmm. why this is cool and why this is good and why it's well-made. And then I, I need to like force myself to look at it and try to see that and try to acknowledge that. And that's a whole other uncomfortable mess of things. Oh, just start in sales. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm perfect. Like my only flaw is my modesty. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's <Absolutely>. saying. <laughs> but it's, it's really important good. to look at what's good in your work because otherwise, how do you know what you what you should repeat and what you shouldn't? Yeah, I mean, exactly. Get there's stuff where it's measurable, where you can actually see if you've done right or wrong. But there's so much other stuff where there's a growth, where it's not just black and white, where it gets a lot more mm -hmm. difficult. Yeah, yeah. Are you able to? Joe, by yourself to actually sit down and reflect upon the good things? Or is it a bit forced upon you like it is with me? It's not something that ever occurs to me to do. Yeah. I, I never think, oh, I'm going to look at what's good in this. It's not a thought that ever pops into my head. <laughs> no. Ever. Because for, for me, it's often that thing of, oh, I'm looking for a picture because I'm doing some kind of marketing thing. I need to send something off to a client. I'm scrolling through all the images. And then suddenly I stops and I go like, Oh damn! I did that right. Yeah, and then it's yeah. halfway between like, oh, that was really cool, and half half of being like, yeah, but I know what I could do better. <laughs> or oh, there's the first attempt. The the next one was much better. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I was like, mm, yeah. I, if 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 only I could turn that off at times. But then we're going back to the whole thing of being a, being complacent and falling behind and stuck in the same old grooves and yeah. It's it's funny. Like, do you do notes for that? If you do actually do something, like, do you write if on your plans or if you have like one of those pictures, like a note to it? It's like next time do this. No, well, well, so one thing I do is I try to write like a small journal of what I did at work or mm -hmm. did every single day, mostly just work related. But I try to write in there a few things like that. Okay. But I don't have a good system for going back and looking at those things. Ah, okay. Maybe I should figure that out or do some notion magic and make it actually pop up what I did last year the same week, kind of. Yeah. I think that's doable. Now I want to, no, I'm getting distracted and thinking about that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> sorry, you were saying. No, it's uh, something actually Steph started and taught me is with cookbooks. Steph and yeah. I both cook and we cook together a lot. And she at one point, because for me, it's always, I, I was looking at it and then I sometimes I made myself notes like on an extra piece of paper on what to do different. <laughs> And Steph is like really good at it. She just takes out a pen or a pencil and just writes into the recipe book. Yeah. Like here's Jamie Oliver's and like uh, next time at two more of those, and like one less of those, that's a lot better. So that, that's, and that's actually something I, I started also doing. 
especially when it comes down to cooking, but also whenever I have written instructions, I directly write in those instructions because I know the next time I need it, it's probably going to be a while. And if I pull them out and I open it, I want it written in there. It's not going to help me in my notebook or an extra piece of paper because I will have forgotten. <laughs> That's a really great idea. I really like the idea of just writing notes in the book you're referencing. At the same it's time, it's like a sacri- religious. Yes, exactly. It's sacred because I love to read and it's cookbook and it's something to treasure and it's always... The, and you're like, quote, unquote, ruining the book by writing in it. Exactly, but you're not actually ruining it. I mean, you're making it better because you're actually improving on the recipe. Yeah. Or on yeah. mistakes you made. Sometimes I just write something that's like, trust the recipe when it says like, leave in the oven for a half an hour on high heat. And I'm like, no, it's going to burn. And then I have to put it back like three times. <laughs> yeah. It's just trust the recipe, idiot. <laughs> yeah. I think a lot of what we do, we do a lot of the reflecting is done together. So if I do something or if Jimmy does something or if Steve does something, that's always discussed within the group, even if it's something that only one of one person is working on at that time. We always discuss it within the group. Mm-hmm. And I think it's probably a product of having worked together for a long time and being quite close. Yeah. Is that we're always interested in what other people are doing and we all I mean, we always have an opinion to offer, granted. <laughs> it's really good to talk to other people about it and just say, I've been having this issue. I think I'm gonna try this next time. And instead, it kind of shortens that learning curve because instead of just going, I think I'm going to try this next time and then trying it, you say, mm-hmm. I think I'm going to try this next time. And then someone else goes, have you thought about trying this? Someone else mm-hmm. goes, have you thought about trying this? And then you go, you either go, no, I'm really confused. Or you go, ah, there's some really great ideas. Yep. I actually had one of those today, today and a month ago when, when Dan of Bubblewood UK was visiting, he helped me treat some of the stock we bring to the Austin Design Fair. And he just immediately said, like, why don't you have just a big barrel of this goo and just dip everything in it? So that's what today, a month afterwards, that's what I did. I made a big pot of the, the wax I use for surface treatment. Mm-hmm. I had that liquid. I heated up this, the big thing I was going to treat and just boom. And I was like, I should have done this ages ago. <laughs> Reminds Excellent. me a little bit on the what was it, evaporized bucket. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's like like you did the other day, Rasmus, where you welded the tangs of several knives onto one piece of angle iron. Yeah, yeah. Because well. then you can pick up and quench six knives at a time. Which which is a tip I got watching you guys. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> which is a tip I got. I think I watched Blenheim Forge do that actually. The, yeah, uh, London London-based mm-hmm. knife making company. Yeah, yeah. And it makes perfect sense. And I posted it on the Norwegian blacksmithing group as well. And I had one of the guys saying, yeah, we've been doing that for ages. I was like, well, why didn't you fucking tell anyone? (laughs) Because we love to see you suffer. (laughs) Something like that. Uh, And it's like, the one thing about hardening knives is like the whole thing of opening the door, like getting a hold of the blade, not dropping it along the way, not dropping it into water or into oil or anything like that. But if you have like just a big block of angle iron, you can just grab onto it. It's a lot easier, it's a lot mm. quicker, and you can do many knives at once. And it's like, yeah, it's so obvious after a fact. Absolutely. But of course, it requires you have a welder and or a well, magical hot we're actually So two of the guys who help us out with the forge kind of behind the scenes there, one is X. RAF and the other is currently serving the RAF oh. and they're both engineers and they have 
the RAF has fantastic ways of increasing efficiency. It's got methods that have been in place for a long time yeah. for increasing efficiency. And so those two are amazing at that. Like you can tell them a process and then they can point out where you can get more efficient. And this isn't a practice in telling Jimmy or Steve how to be more efficient because those guys are really good at working out how a process is most efficient for them. Mm. And it's different for everybody. The way I forge a knife is most efficient for me is different to the way Jimmy forges a knife. We produce the same end result, but we do it in the way that is most efficient for us. So Tim produced this thing called a Gantt chart, which has two colors, blue and red. And you have a little line for each process involved in making a thing for example a knife blade okay. the blue lines are long as in the time it takes to perform that action whether it's forging a blade stamping the blade profile grinding the blade whatever yeah. and at the end of each little blue line you have a section of red which is the time it takes to transition from one process to the next right mm -hmm. so the time it takes to fish all the knives out of the vermiculite or the time it takes to change belts or the time it takes to get the welder out to weld all the tangs onto the piece of angle mm. and so those are the areas you then work on improving your efficiency right because my the guys i work with are really good at the process side of things when they're not being creative with the products they're being creative with the process and they mm -hmm. can come up with creative ways of increasing efficiency but if we can design the workshop to be a really efficient place to work then that's going to save us lots of time yeah. yeah so it's things like having the welder living under the bench that you're going to do the welding on so that you don't have to wheel it across the workshop to use it to then wheel it back yeah it's things like having a convenient belt storage system so that when you're changing belts when you're bevel grinding the belts are just there to hand and you mm -hmm. don't have to fuss about getting the next one or check or getting new belts and it's things like that that increase efficiency that just make your life easier. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And again, like in hindsight, they're so obvious. Yes. But you need someone to go and point them out or to look at it in a new way. Absolutely. I thought welding the tangs onto a piece of angle line was the most efficient that that process could get. I was like, that's the best you can do. But it's not. Today, Tim texted me with a little sketch of a bar with a load of slots in. And he was like, get a little hole laser cut in the ends of all your tanks. You put the mm. tanks through the slot and then you have a bar that goes through all the holes and holds them all in place. <laughs> and then instead of welding all the tanks on, you just slot it in, run the bar across, slot it in, run the bar across. So instead of spending 20 minutes welding on a batch of 20 knives, yeah. you spend two minutes putting them in slots. So you've just yeah. saved yourself 18 minutes over 20 knives. For fuck's you sake. don't know how stupid you are until <laughs> someone points it out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. That I mean, granted, that's a really, really good system if you get laser cut blanks that you start out with forging and you leave the yeah. tang more or less intact from the laser cutter. Yeah. If you're doing a lot more manipulation, I guess you should say, of the stock material, I need to figure out, the, for my sake, I need to figure out a different way of getting the same kind of efficiency. Or well, even if you're, you can forge the tanks to a similar size because that slot doesn't have to be perfect size. No, no, that's true. So, so long as you forge the tangs within a, say, two mil tolerance, which is easy enough, you drill yeah. your pinhole if you're using a pin in the same place, mm. or it doesn't even have to be in the same place. The knives don't all have to sit at the same level. They're only no, going to no. get dumped in oil. 
So, so I long think, as you I think have... I need, need to see a picture of what you're doing to yeah. fully see how I can translate into what I'm doing. Yeah. But yes, definitely, I could do a lot of things. But my initial thought is just it's a lot easier to just weld bits of steel together. <laughs> if there is like if I get laser, just laser cut notches in a bit of steel, and I have yeah. the tank kind of poking a bit through instead of welding onto the flat of it. But then there's the other thing: how many knives are you doing? Currently, I did twenty-five or something at one go. We do seventy a month minimum. So it's like the with the quantities we've got greater room for time saving. And it yes. really and it really gets interesting with seventy knives. That's where it starts calculating the material for the welder gases, yes, uh, filament mm. that well, well, yes, electricity. Yep. Yeah. My stage, I'm at the point where I want to get my systems up so that I can efficiently do 50 knives every three months or something. Mm. That's kind mm. of the level I would like to be at. Yeah. And I also want to go gradually up to that so that I can see if the market wants to buy that many knives from me. I love that with the time optimization. I know pretty much shit about blacksmithing, but I used to have cook-offs with buddies of mine. Nice. Where we'd actually have like, how complex can a meal be and how fast we can make it. And it's basically <laughs> the same you start, like I used to start by pre-cutting basically all the vegetables, everything. And then I started cooking, so everything was prepared. And then I started cooking. And then I was, okay, now I have downtime because this has to cook. And then I'm looking on the table and I see all the cut vegetables that are laying there that's coming in the next step. And I know, oh, those I could have saved in the beginning. And that's what I could be doing now. And that's how I was making notes. And this is how you work yourself with like using those little breaks in between to see what you can do for the next step. And I think it pretty much worked for anything if you mm -hmm. have documentation on like what to do. Yeah, precisely. And actually, there's so many parallels between cooking and blacksmithing. <laughs> Time, technique, and temperature. Yeah. Yeah, I I don't know. I, I usually don't burn myself when I pick up the carrots. <laughs> 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 I burn myself so bad doing blacksmithing because in my mind, it's like the same beginner's mistake everyone does. You start blacksmithing and you get hectic and you touch it without your glove on or you see that it's not red hot and then mm. you automatically your brain goes like, oh, that must be cold. Yeah, big mistakes. Ooh, smells like bacon. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> Mr. Blaster. Back, back to cook. Like, oh, bad, bad at blacksmithing, back to cooking. <laughs> yeah. Excellent. Is, is that something to focus on? Is no, it? wait, hold on. I want to actually tell about my, my weekend because I, yes. I, it's kind of good, kind of hilarious. So my younger brother turned 30 last week. And oh, he... those pictures. <laughs> Not of me, of my brother. He hosted himself a proper big birthday party. He had 50-something guests coming. Lots of wonderful people. Uh, but also funny, because... Sorry to interrupt you there. It's funny that you say that, but in all of those pictures, it's only him. And it looks like he's on an empty stage. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, that is true. But he had six different costumes he was wearing throughout the <laughs> evening. The party was barely more than six hours long. <laughs> you will be able to see them on Patreon. Uh, yeah, yeah, we can probably put them up there at your own risk, so to speak. But also, so he, he studied script writing and he's been working a lot lately, the last couple of years of writing poems, writing short stories, writing TV pilots, that kind of stuff. 
mostly just his own ideas that he gets out, surprising amount of inspiration from family life as we grew up, including the story, uh, vaguely related the story that he is, has written into a TV series that is fantastic so far, and it's called How to Make Moonshine and Get Away with Murder, which are some, some, some vague connotations to old family stories and all of that. But at the birthday party, he also kind of wanted to have a birthday roast of him. So I, I actually got a chance to do something that vaguely looks like stand-up for the first time. Nice. And I will, I'll tell you about the best joke I think I had, which I nearly forgot to put into the script sort of before going up there. And that's the fact that he is the one that wants to be an author and has been studying script writing and all of those things. And I am the one who actually got a stipend to write the book. <laughs> and none of his friends knew that, so I killed from the beginning. Um, and someone, someone did film the whole thing, and I'll try to chuck it up on the, the Patreon things with English subtitles. Hopefully I can use some AI thing to do all of it for me. But um, yeah, if people actually want to see that, because I've, I honestly am a little bit proud, but at the same time, I watched it back and I was like, oh, I should rewrite like all of these jokes. And I was like, no, I'm not, never going to tell any of them again. <laughs> <laughs> I'd love to. Yeah, love uh, to but yeah that was fun. That was, that was the highlight of my week. Excellent. Nice. Yeah. Now, now we should focus on the thing, or did you have things as well, Jan? No, it was mainly just work. Things are chaotic at the moment, so nothing worth mentioning too much. Okay. Then do you have something to focus on? Yes, I do. I've been thoroughly enjoying a guy called The Hexman for a couple of videos. I didn't have time to watch much, but for some reason it showed up and I just clicked on it because I thought it was funny. You know how a lot of people are doing those camper bills or camper van bills? Mm-hmm. He kind of did the same thing, but on the back of a mule. <laughs> so it's like one of those four-wheel like off-road vehicles. Oh, not the animal. The- no, not the Amazon. Oh, that would be even better, but no, no. I'm talking about those like four-wheel drives, and like with a fold-out, so you can even like stretch his legs out in it because it's so small. It's like that little cubicle. And I just love the positive energy and the humor on it. He also did a rabbit house for the daughter's rabbit and just made it look like a whole house. And it's just good, easy, fun. He's not like as he says like he shows the mistakes he's not the best at doing stuff his humor goes i think there's some similarities to bobby duke so kind of borderline childish yes. to it's just good fun like okay. try to try to give it a watch what was the name again hexman is the name of the channel it's h-a-x-m-a-n right thank you very much joe the guy i would like to focus on is a guy called billy goodworth And he's someone I've known for a long time. And I've known him through bushcraft and blacksmithing. And he is making a career out of making cool shit. His Instagram is bills underscore workshop. Go and look at him because he works with wood and metal and every material in between. And he does it really, really well. We're going to be doing a few collaborations. We are working together at Makers Central 2024 teaching blacksmithing classes and we're also doing a collaboration which means you and him will be teaching and steve will run around shout that's it yeah yeah you got it um, <laughs> and that was an instagram build b-i-l-l-s underscore workshop 
God. He is a top chap and a very, very nice guy. Very cool. And I have, sort of in the style of looking at all the silly things that can happen in England, been really enjoying Jay Foreman and Mapman on YouTube. Especially when you talk about all of the absolutely bonkers infrastructure going on in London. <laughs> and what they tried to make going on and that never did go on. It tickles my really nerdy brain of like infrastructural and making systems work and then looking and then talking about London as like it doesn't. <laughs> but they have a lot of other fancy interesting things of just saying what is a continent and then having a vaguely interesting dissertation or something about that. So yeah, and, and their humor is brilliant and they 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 tend to, it seems, try to film themselves saying the loudest things in the most awkward places if you like maps mapman is excellent if you just like to hate on infrastructure and in and around london jay foreman is excellent and it's the same channel so it's easy for you. <laughs> Fantastic. do we have any last little tidbits no not that i can think of at the moment excellent. but my brain's motion my allergy tablets are kicking in so at least the burning in my eyes is slowly going away <laughs> I don't understand why you want to live in a place that has like 90 months a year with allergies. <laughs> well, because that's my fault. Well, at least my stupid bodies. <laughs> <laughs> like my hay fever is just, I've never had it. It started, like, what I don't know now, like almost 10 years ago. And it's getting worse every single year. Where all oh. my family that I used to make fun of because they had allergies, there's, there's going away. My brother's oh. now is like, oh, I don't have any more trouble. And I'm like, fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> Hi there, older brother. Did you remember or do you remember when you used to laugh at me because of my allergies? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I do. Yeah. <laughs> Payback's a bitch. Oh, yeah. Joe, where can the good people find you and all the shenanigans you are up to? I am on Instagram as Thornwood Forge. We are on YouTube under the same name. Very nice. And our website is thornwoodforge.com. Wonderful. And people should go and check that out, especially if things we were saying were slightly confusing because you have a lot of really good images explaining yep. even better, I think, most of the things we tried to talk about. That's yes. correct. And you can find the rest of us collectively, including Red when he's feeling better and not being old and sick. Well, at least one of those two at patreon.com slash two-thirds focused and two-thirds focused on any of the mostly social places. And you can find me at Rasmus Lewin and lewinsmed.no. And you can find me at Jan Maxwell or under Nerd Inventor. Wonderful. Thank you. Thank you, Joe. Yeah, thank you, Joe, it was great having you. Thank you for having me. And thank you guys for listening. Bye-bye.